blue I went down to the corner Just to meet my gal I found her standing on the sidewalk Talking to my pal I strolled back to the barroom To get another drink of gin But the first thing I knew I was really my Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers at about 100 pages an episode and give my thoughts and comments on them. In this episode, I will be continuing my examination of Frank Norris's posthumously published novel, Vandover and the Brute. I urge you to go back and listen to my previous episode on, on this novel to get a sense of what has happened up to the midway point, um, but I'll say a few things about it here. Vandover is essentially a, a, a young man just graduated from Harvard, returns home to San Francisco uh, to begin his life as an artist. Um, he has some talent, he has some ambition. He's also from a very well-off family uh, that's well-propertied. Uh, he has servants. Um, his father's alive, although his mother is dead. And he, he has everything going for him. By the midpoint in the novel, uh, he's started a process of losing what he's had. And several things come together to create the situation. Uh, one of which is he come, uh, the, the so-called brute, the, the titular brute, comes to, become, uh, comes to be a stronger part of Andover's life. Uh, this is, in some sense, his excuse for his bad behavior, his drinking, his uh, spending too much time with women, his mistreatment of women. He blames all that stuff on the brute. He also blames his fact, the fact that he can't seem to get his artistic goals met on this amorphous brute that he thinks lives in his head. Um, at one point in the first part of the novel, he rapes a young woman. At first, he just you know denies that he did anything wrong. He even has a conversation with his friends about how to treat women, and his response to that is essentially that you know women want to be seduced, women encourage that, and men shouldn't resist that and just be part of that. Uh, men shouldn't try to be gentlemen because women don't really want that. Um, some of his friends call him out on on this statement, but he just sort of ignores them. When he finds out that the woman he raped, her name was Ida Wells, killed herself. He goes into kind of a deep depression. His father finds out and decides, instead of making him come to terms with that, says, how about you just go on a vacation? And when you return from the vacation, we'll send you to Paris where you can focus on your artistic career. He goes on the vacation and on the return voyage, the ship not far from home sinks. He escapes along with most of the passengers. But instead of going home to see his father, he spends the night at basically the bar. Um, when he comes home, he finds his father dead. And that's where the midpoint of the novel kind of leads off. He's still in a good situation. He has money. Uh, he has a talent. Um, and he's from a privileged family. But we're going to see how he squanders all this opportunity. Um, in some ways, the first half of the novel is really about Vandover's character, his dreams, his relationships, and the setup for his decline. 
he's really a artist who's too pampered to really work on his art. He's not really forced to because he knows he always has an income from his father. Um, if he doesn't get any work done, he doesn't get a job, he doesn't get um, payment for any of his work. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change his life any. He doesn't even have much incentive to become a good artist because he doesn't have to really worry about his future. Um, the oyster bar he spends much of his time at is called the Imperial, and he spends his time really looking for lower class women uh, or kind of middle class women in some cases for him to date and seduce. He does have a steady girlfriend who is quite nice and, and quite a good fit for him, but he more or less allows that relationship to atrophy. Um, now, when he learns about the suicide of Ida Wells, he does begin to address some of his sins, at least internally, but it's his father who sends him to San Diego to relax. Um, and on his return and finding his father dead, uh, he's basically alone with his sins and his future. Uh, an ongoing theme of this novel is that Vandover really is these two people. On the one hand, he's a promising young man with a great artistic future. And on the other hand, he's the brute an apparent product of the lack of his strong female presence in his life because his mother died when he was quite young. Now, there's two ways to read this. One is that Vandover is really taking, or I mean not Vandover, Norris, the author, Frank Norris, is really taking this series seriously. Vandover really is not to blame for his bad actions. He is really just a victim of circumstances. And this may very well be Norris's intention. I, I'm not quite sure, even after finishing um, the novel. But a second way to read this, and this is one that I tend to prefer, is that the brute is simply Vandover's self-justification for his bad behavior. If Norris is indeed a social Darwinist, and modern, as modern critics point out, perhaps Vandover is just an example of a weak-willed, inferior man who blames others for his misfortune and his decline. Now, most of the second half of the novel is really just Vandover's rapid degradation into poverty and, and essentially homelessness. Depending on your feelings towards him, you may either enjoy the second half of the novel or find it tough to read. I think when you set it across next to McTeague, uh, the next novel we'll look at by Frank Norris, you'll find this is a little bit more enjoyable to watch, to, to watch or experience than McTeague. McTeague is a brutal read in a lot of ways, and I'll get to that when I, when I get there. I, for one, often laughed out loud watching this despicable, pampered young man decline. Now, even if you set aside the rape and his refusal to accept responsibility for the suicide of his victim, he is still essentially a horrible person. His friends know it, and the people who take advantage of him know it. Um, so um, we picked up with uh, chapter 10 last episode, so we'll start with chapter 11. Um, we learn that Vandover has a few money troubles. Uh, he makes a big deal of it. it it's, he kind of presents it as the end of the world, but it's really not as bad as he thinks. His property amounts to a block of, of heavily mortgaged rental units, um, which still produce a, a fairly steady stream of rental incomes, despite the, the need to pay off mortgages. He's got the homestead, which is all paid off. He has some savings. And he has 9000 in bonds. His lawyer talks him through all this, kind of step by step, and shows him what properties he has. And his suggestion is simply to rent the homestead. His, father, his father's job allowed him to live a higher class of life than Vandover, a pathetically failed artist, could manage. But he was still returning quite a bit of money. He got $84 a month from the rental units. He could get 125 from renting the homestead. 
He gets 23 a month on interest from the bonds, 4%. So it ends up being about 225 a month in income. And he gets that without any selling any of his vast assets. So I ran these numbers into a historical currency converter. And there's a couple ways to do this and different converters have different methods. One is just to really compare prices based on salaries and how much you could buy and basically based, based on real wages. Another way is to compare how much you know the price of gold was or whatever. But um, anyways, the one I looked at suggested that if you could simply multiply the numbers in this novel by about 25 to get the modern equivalents. So essentially, uh, Vandover was making about 5,000 a month in modern money, 5,000 US a month in modern money. Um, he was previous to this living off an allowance of about $50 a month or about one quarter of what he is now making um, as, a, as an inheritor of his father's estate. So in, if anything, he's better off than he was before his father died. But Vandover finds this situation disastrous and horrific. Um, it's really not that bad, though. He had all the money and security he needs to sustain his lifestyle and work on his art if he wanted to. Chapter 12. We get introduced a bit to Vandover's new life. It's summarized on page 132. A new life now began for Vandover, a life of luxury and aimlessness, which he found charming. He had no duties, no cares, no responsibilities. But there could be no doubt that he was in a manner changed. The old life of dispossession seemed to have lost its charm. For nearly 26 years, nothing extraordinary had happened to break in upon the uneventful and ordinary course of his existence. And then suddenly three great catastrophes had befallen, like the springing of three successive mines beneath his feet. Ida's suicide, the wreck, and his father's death, all within a month. The whole fabric of his character had been shaken, jostled out of its old shape. His desire for vice was numbed, his evil habits all deranged. Here, if ever, was a chance to begin anew, to commence all over again. It seemed an easy matter. He would merely have to remain inactive, impassive, and his character would, would of itself reform upon the new conditions. But Vandover made another fatal mistake. The brute in him had only been stunned. The snake had only been soothed. The better self was as sluggish as the brute, and his desire of art as numb as his desire for vice. It was not a continued state of inaction and idleness that could help him but rather the active and energetic arousing and springing up of those better qualities in him still dormant and inert. So there's good and bad in here. Uh, on the one hand, he seems not to want to run full head into debauchery, but on the other hand, he doesn't really seem to be motivated to improve his life and to make progress in his career. But yeah, we still don't re really feel bad for them. He, he actively neglects his, his art. He wastes his time with silly distractions such as taking up banjo playing and learning creative ways to use matches to, to light cigarettes. Um, it's, he's basically essentially bored, and he doesn't find pleasure in the old things that made him happy, yet he really can't uh, get his uh, focus together. Chapter 13. In this chapter, we experience Vandover's loss of his girlfriend, uh, Turner Ravis. She basically comes to terms with him. He says, she, she says, you know, I forgive you. I'm understanding of where you're at, but we're not going to get married. I don't see any future with you. So he dumps her uh, or she dumps him and um, moves on with her life. And we don't really see her for the rest of the novel. 
Uh, she was a major figure in the first half of the novel, but at this point she just kind of falls off the page. Vandover broods on this for a while and decides that he loves her more than life itself. And here we, he ends up being a pet, typical petulant post-breakup um, young man who didn't appreciate the woman while they were together. But once he's, she leaves him, he realizes she was everything to him. And of course, he goes on a bender when uh, faced with this. Vandover attended it. It was a debauch of 48 hours, the longest and worst he had ever indulged in. For the long time, the brute had been numb and dormant. Now at last, when he, woke, when he woke, he was raging, more insatiable and more irresistible than ever. So there's a long description here of the bender he goes on through town. But um, again, he's, he's making excuses for it. Here the excuse is uh, Turner breaking up with him. Chapter 14. Having lost his chance at a regular family life with Turner, Vandover proceeds to squander his artistic ability. And this chapter begins promising enough. He's, gonna, he's, go, he's going to the opera, and he's somehow inspired by what he sees on the stage, and he decides that he'll straighten up and focus on completing his artistic masterpiece. Uh, it's a big work he thought up years before called The Last Enemy, which is going to show a dying soldier being attacked by a lion or something. In doing so, in, in finally accomplishing this achievement, he's going to crush the brute. He makes a decent effort, but his hand starts to shake too much. And everything he paints is essentially um, trash. Um, he's, he's losing his talent, essentially. Um, he doesn't lose all his creativity. He seems to still have the ideas in his head, but he's just not physically capable of, of painting. And then he starts to get depressed about this. Quote, as he turned to his work once more, the thrill of joy and relief passed over him. This time his hand was sure, steady, his head was clear. It had been nervousness after all, and he picked up his charcoal. He even exclaimed to himself, Just the same. This was a curious experience this afternoon. But the curious experience repeated itself once more that night, as soon as he tried to work. Once more, certain shapes and figures were born upon his canvas. But they were no longer the true children of his imagination. They were no longer his own. They were changelings, grotesque abortions. It was as if the brute in him, like some malicious witch, had stolen away the true offsprings of his mind, putting in their place the deformed dwarfs, his own hideous spawn. So he shifts the blame for his failing art on the brute, and basically he's lost that. So he's lost his fiance. He's lost his art. Um... And in chapter 15, things start to get really, really bad for Vandover. He is sued by Ida's Well's father for about $25,000, not about exactly $25,000, for causing her suicide. The main evidence against him is a letter that Ida wrote before her suicide, which blames Vandover, and we presume it goes into detail about the rape. Now, Vandover is too passive and, and essentially too stupid to call a lawyer or to do anything about this. So his old pal Geary comes into the, the situation. He knows about the, the lawsuit. He's an up-and-comer in a law firm. And in fact, it's his firm that's re that, that Wells reaches out for, for, um, for counsel. And he knows very well that Wells is not going to get more than about $5,000 in court. Right? So I guess he's seen these cases before, and he knows that you know once the judge looks at the evidence, 
Wells isn't going to get more than $5,000. Okay, so Geary has a plan here. Um, he wants to basically take advantage of Andover and Wells to further his own business interests. So Geary goes behind his client's back um, to talk directly to Vandover. Geary knows of a plan to purchase the houses that Vandover inherited, which are, which are a block of rental units, in the hopes of, of some company wanting to build a factory there. He thinks he can get about twelve dollars or $15,000 for the units if he sold them directly to the company. So he designs to swindle Vandover out of the property using the lawsuit as the device. Um, so this is how bad off Vandover is and how catastrophic this lawsuit is for him personally because had he not had to sell these units to pay off this to settle this lawsuit he would have you know made a fair chunk of change on the selling of those properties um, anyways he approaches both parties he tells Wells Geary I mean Geary tells Wells that you're not gonna get more than five thousand dollars but I can get you eight thousand dollars cash he then turns around and goes to Vandover and says you know if you can come up with $8,000 cash, the lawsuit will, will be settled. Um, Vandover says, well, I don't have $8,000 cash. And Geary says, well, that's okay. I do, and I'll buy those houses from you for $8,000. So, you know, that's that. Um, Geary's willing to front the money in exchange for signing over the properties, and it's done. Pure business. And it turns out that Wells started the lawsuit not because of any deep sorrow over his his daughter, but rather because he has some own, his own business dealings that he needed cash for. That's one reason he was willing to take 8000 cash rather than fight for the 25000 Everyone in this chapter is actually rather gross. Vandover for just being Vandover. Geary uh, basically taking advantage of a, of a rape and a suicide to start his own um, path to wealth, wealth. And Wells basically using his dead daughter as a way to advance his own career. So anyways, um, chapter 16. This is a long chapter that really ex focuses on Vandover's decline and, and how he went from, you know, still being in a decent situation to, to being basically impoverished. Remember, he still, even with the loss of the rental units, he still has around $150 a month in rents or interests, which is about $3,500 in modern U.S. currency. And that's every month. Um, and he still has these other assets, the homestead and the bonds. But he takes up gambling instead of trying to get his life back together. His friendship with hate starts to fall apart bit by bit. And the brute, this psychological force in his head that pushes him towards vice, actually begins to become a secondary person or a secondary personality in Vandover. He takes to even barking like a dog and walking on all fours in the, in the nude. One of his buddies, Ellis, sees him actually doing this. And it, it's kind of almost as if the brood is manifesting as a separate um, psychology. And I'll come back to that uh, when we review the themes of the novel. He starts gambling. And to pay for his gambling habit, Vandover sells his homestead for about $15,000. Uh, so he has this big chunk of cash now, $15,000. Uh, but he starts to... Bend it very quickly. He lives the high life. He continues gambling, high stakes, high cost gambling, and he burns through the small fortune. So it's like three hundred thousand U.S. dollars in current currency. He burns through that in less than a year. So it's, it's actually rather amazing. 
It's at this moment that I want to take seriously the idea that Vandover is perhaps possessed by some horrible secondary personality that wants to see him decline. Otherwise, how could he just be so stupid? I, I have a hard time imagining how someone could spend through, you know, $300,000 in a year just on, on Vice. But uh, I guess it's possible. Um, I mean, we are still talking about someone who has $24,000 in liquid assets, bonds, and savings. Um, which is a whole lot. Anyways, he burns through all this money. And by the end of the chapter, he loses his friends and he's basically broke, living on the interests of his remaining bonds and forced to take up work. So he, in, in, the, in the course of basically like two chapters, Vandover has gone from an income of around $250 a month to about $23 a month, which is the income from his bonds. And then he has to get a job. So chapter 17, it opens two years later, and Vandover, amazingly, is not dead. Uh, he's been living off his bonds and a job his lawyer got for him. And his job is basically painting kind of cheap, poor images on safes. So it's kind of like uh, illustrating safes for, for sale. He actually begins to learn to economize a little bit and budget himself. He skips meals. He uh, saves cigarettes. He starts to try to drink a little bit less. Um, he's a little more careful with money, but he's basically living day to day and month to month. And he's still gambling from time to time. And when he loses work for a few days, this actually pushes him to his last cent. So he's really kind of living what we'd call paycheck to paycheck by this point. In the final pages of the chapter, he's walking around actually conserving cigarettes and, and skipping meals. Um, chapter 18. In the final chapter of Vandover and the Brute, we learn that Geary has become a successful lawyer and a rich landlord. He used the profits he won from scamming Vandover to buy various properties near the factory, which he rents out to, to workers there. Vander shows, Vandover shows up at Geary's law office begging for work. Geary kind of plays with him a little bit, scolds him, and, and eventually says, well, you're an old college friend, so I'll help you. So it's for, he kind of forces Vandover to grovel a little bit. Um, but Geary finally does have a job for him, and that job is preparing those houses for new tenants. So his job is basically to clean up for the, the old tenants and make sure the houses are spick and span for new renters. In the final scene of the novel, Vandover is doing this job, and it's being ordered to clean up filth by some demanding new tenants of Geary. So it's, you know, he kind of ends in a pretty low place. They're being kicked around like a servant by people who are, you know, he would have considered early in the novel to be of lower class than him. So that is Vandover and the Brute. It's, it's a nice little novel. It, it's rather fun to read. It's a quick read. It pairs nicely, I think, with McTeague, uh, which we'll start looking in the next episode. And I plan to spend about three episodes on McTeague. And I want to end that, or at least have a, an episode where I focus in part on comparing these two novels, because in some ways they're really night and day reflections on the same theme. If in McTeague, it is work and misery, in, or mer work and miserliness, savings that destroys families. In Vandover and the Brute, it's really sloth and overspending and squandered talent. Um, and I will try to approach a direct comparison later. One problem with this novel is that there really are not that many likable characters. Ida Wells and Turner Ravis are nice enough and they seem like likable characters. We'd like to know a bit more about them. But in, in the novel, they're really just pulls on Vandover. I, Ida Wells and Turner are both representations of perhaps a, a, a good life. 
And in some ways, I think Ida Wells was the ideal partner for Vandover because she kind of liked the fun life. She liked going to baseball games. She just seemed to enjoy life a little bit more. But Vandover destroys that uh, pretty quickly by by raping her. Um, Turner, maybe it's not such a good fit. He's, it's more of a class fit. It's, it's, what he, it's the kind of woman he would have been expected to to marry. But in any case, they're, they're just pulls on Vandover. They're, they're not developed really as fully fleshed out characters. His friends, Hyatt and Geary, are not very attractive in themselves. Hyatt is plagued by this kind of perverse, old-fashioned chivalry. And yeah, it's certainly preferable to the way Vandover lives his life, but it's still a rather sexist point of view he embraces. Geary is simply an opportunist who uses the rape and suicide of a, of a young woman to become rich. There are perhaps two paths that Vandover may have taken. Um, you know, I'm sure Vandover could have been a fairly successful business person had he put his mind to it, but neither path really seems very appealing to, to modern readers. Well, now it is time that I discuss the major themes in, in each work in hopes of building up towards an index of concepts that have most influenced American literature over time. And um, the first is, and I just made a quick list here, the first is class. Um, Norris is writing Vandover and the Brute, and in fact all of his works, at a time when class conflict is growing in the United States. As historians sometimes call this period the Great Upheaval, really because it's the, the, the deep struggles between capital and labor or between capital and farmers in various aspects. And his, the novel The Octopus is really a deep examination of this conflict between capital and, and labor. Now, Vandover starts the novel in a position of privilege. So it's a story here of class mobility, but downward class mobility. We don't, uh, and on Geary's hand, we see reverse social mobility. He starts out a little bit lower class and he kind of is able to become a rich landlord by the end of, of the novel. Another way class plays a role in this story is in Vandover's relationship with women. He turns his back on women who may have been good partners for him because of anxieties about class. Uh, an ongoing theme in the early part of the novel is his inability or unwillingness to be seen in public with certain women. Um, he is dating the one he's supposed to date because of their more equal class status, but he doesn't really treat her well and doesn't really care to marry her. So class uh, plays a role throughout this book in various ways. Um, not surprising because it was a period of U.S. history in which class relationships were really thrown into the air by industrialization and these new forces. Um, another theme is drink, gambling, and vice. Um, we get plenty of vice in this novel. And one of the things that might be fun about reading this is, is if you kind of enjoy reading about debauchery and bacchanals and that kind of stuff. We get lots of it. Um, there's a lot of prostitution. There's certainly a lot of drinking, constant smoking, and then gambling. It's all devices for uh, Vandover's decline, of course, but it's still some from time to time uh, enjoyable to watch this kind of under underside of life. And we appreciate that we're in a time in American literature when authors can speak a little bit more openly about some of these themes. Travel as a source of hope, or just travel in general. Um, 
I'm reminded that Mark Twain's career really begins with a, a travelogue, in a sense, abroad. Uh, other major American writers like Henry James actually lived much of their life in Europe. So Europe is a draw at the, at the time. And in the 20th century, billions of Americans will spend time in Europe, whether, you know, through war or travel or through other means. In this novel, travel really does express itself as a source of hope or a rebirth or a refreshal or a renewal. Um, I'd have to look up the exact dates that middle-class tourism really started to take off, but my understanding is it's, it's about this time with uh, kind of this rise of this late 19th century middle class, we start to get more tourism, which includes trips to Paris or, or London or to kind of beaches and resorts and that kind of thing. Um, Vandover in this novel wants to go to Paris. For him, that's going to be the rebirth he needs to start his career again. Another place he visits is San Diego, which his father sends him to as kind of a, a place to think things over and get a, get a fresh start in life. So travel as a source of hope or a source of rebirth is, is here. Um, well, in capitalism, uh, that's a theme in this novel, certainly. Um, Vandover is hardly the capitalist. Uh, he perhaps could have been a good capitalist. He had enough money that he could have invested it and made good business decisions, but he didn't. His father, though, was someone who was eager to take advantage of, of kind of the open market in San Francisco to, you know, get a lot of property for himself. He had this scheme in his, when he first got there of buying properties, mortgaging them, buying the next property over, mortgaging them. And then, so it was heavily mortgaged, but he was able to get a, you know, significant amount of, of wealth into the family through this scheme. Um, the best example, though, of kind of the this just free market exploitation of, of, of one another is Geary's theft, essentially, of, of Vandover's um, property using the, the lawsuit as the device for doing that. So in this novel, capitalism is presented more just as, you know, picking the next guy's pocket rather than kind of a, a, a relationship between work and labor or labor and capital, except at the end of the novel when when Vandover essentially becomes a, a, a member of the working class, working for wages. Um, mental illness. Um, is the brute a mental illness? Uh, Norris doesn't go this far as to define the brute as a mental illness, but there is some evidence that perhaps it is being, it is manifesting in strange ways that suggests that maybe Vandover had a bit of a a mental illness. Um, he, by the end of the novel, is barking uh, kind of uncontrollably. He has blackout periods where he doesn't understand what he did. He is certainly addicted to gambling. He's perhaps addicted to alcohol as well. Walking around on all fours like a dog is another sign, I guess, of, of some sort of mental illness. There's nothing really defined here, and it would take a psych psychologist to maybe look at this and try to identify what particular mental illness he, he might have. But certainly addiction is, is an issue in the novel. Addiction particularly to gambling. He has more control over his drinking than he does his, his gambling. Um, the law as a source of corruption. Um, both Vandover's father and Geary and to a lesser degree, Wells, are eager to use the law as it stands as a way to make money at the expense of others. Uh, Vandover's father is perhaps the most honest of these. He's just kind of using mortgages and real estate law to, to maintain 
a, a steady rental income, Geary clearly was manipulating the law to, to make a profit for himself. I mean, that was totally a, an inside deal there. And then Wells, of course, using a lawsuit to push his own career along. It's not really clear what he was after, but he had some kind of business plan in the air. Um, another theme that I noticed was squandered talent. Um, and I guess there's not much more to say about that, except Vandover is, a, you know, had some talent. It's, it's never clear how t- good of an artist he would have been because he, it's not really developed. There's a chapter early in the book where his abilities and his weaknesses as, a, as an artist are described. But I presume any artist has such, you know, weaknesses and advantages um, and they cultivate their craft to, to meet those those. Well, to me, whatever talents they, they might have. Um, but Vandover certainly doesn't. He doesn't even do the requisite work needed to become a good artist. So there's that. Um, I'll be on the lookout for other examples of squandered talent and what it might mean more broadly for, you know, uh, the American dream, perhaps. Finally, I want to talk briefly about the relationship between men and women. Um, Certainly in the first part of the novel, this is a major theme. By the second half of the novel, Vandover is basically done with women. He's, he's more focused on gambling. But the first half of the novel really is about, in large part, his sex life. Um, and his friends, they, of course, he's younger then. And I guess, you know, of course, young men are, are think, spend a lot of their time thinking about these relationships with women. There's a really great scene in an early chapter where Vandover is talking with his friends about the relationship between men and women, and they all present their kind of theories. Hayat's theory of the relationship is that men's job is to protect women even from themselves, that they should be chivalrous, and that means if a woman is acting in an immoral way, it's the man's job, firstly, not to take advantage of that and to correct her and to send her on her, her way. Vandover's point of view on this is simply, why shouldn't men take advantage of, of weaknesses or immoralities among women? Women want that, um, and it's men's job to basically respond to that. Um, now, interestingly, this is the same logic that allows Geary to basically screw over his friends. He, he does it twice in the novel. Uh, first, when he takes the, the rental units from him to sell to the factory, making a huge profit. And second, when he basically hires him for the cheap at the end of the novel. Geary's doing exactly what Vandover said men should do with women. But he's, you know, so it turns around on him. So yeah, Vandover does get what's coming to him in terms of this argument. Um, We see other important themes about the relationship between men and women. Um, You know, the difficulties of, of... of finding the right person within your class, I think, is, is a very interesting aspect of this of this novel. Vandover simply does not want to be seen with, with lower-class women. And then when he meets someone who's probably more of his class and more the kind of woman he's expected to marry, he just can't make it work. Um, so um, that's, I guess, all I want to say about Vandover and the Brute for now. I will revisit this novel a little bit after we look at McTeague. Uh, in the next episode. Well, thank you for listening um, to American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, If you would like to contact me, you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe, rate, um, and share from iTunes. That will really help this podcast grow. So 
until next time, I uh, thank you for listening. Rocking and drunk again. I kept drinking gin and liquor till way up in the night. With my pal walked into the barroom. We had an awful fight I reached down for my razor And then we knocked around